This is Zachary Camp for Vibe 105. The Occupy Wall Street protests erupted in late 2011 in Zuccotti Park inside New York City's financial district. Protesters gained international attention with their condemnation of social and economic inequalities, and the movement spread to over 80 countries. Michael White, co-founder of the movement, stopped by the Vibe studio to discuss his new book, The End of Protest, a new playbook for revolution. There's so much history included in your book, and that's why I was drawn to it. Why did you feel it was necessary to provide so much context? Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, it, you know, for me, the kind of fundamental message of the book is basically that we should never protest the same way twice. And in order to kind of get that argument across, I wanted to show people examples of protests from the past. But instead of, you know, for me, it was really important not to tell any of the stories I think people have normally heard. So you don't read, you know, you can't find in my book the story of like Gandhi's salt march or Martin Luther King's sit down strike or even like the Russian Revolution. All of these things are have been totally picked over by the left and we have these kind of um, pat interpretations of them. But instead, in my book, I go I go with things like Arminius's ambush of the Romans and like Constantine's conversion and the Nico, you know, the Nico revolt in um, Constantinople and stuff like that. So which I think is going to be good for people because it gives us new things to like kind of talk about. I think this is the, the thing about activism is that, you know, it's like we have to realize that we that protest has been going on since the dawn of human civilization. And we have a papyrus from ancient Egypt that talks about the people overthrowing a king, which is like so amazing to think about 5,000 years ago, someone, you know, people were out in the streets protesting, toppling kings. And then now here, 5,000 years later, we're still doing it. And so it's important to kind of put ourselves in that long trajectory so that we're able to like innovate new, new behaviors. You're one of the founders of the Occupy movement that spread to over 80 countries, and you've described that movement as a constructive failure. Can you tell me what that means? Yeah, you know, so Occupy Wall Street, you know, we call it and I call it Adbusters, the founder of Adbusters, and I created this idea, and we kind of like released it to the world in form in the form of a tactical briefing, which was basically like a an email explaining to people, you know, it said basically, hey, if we combine the 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 protest model that's happening in Egypt at this time in 2011 with what's going on in Spain, and we take that to America, then we'll be able to create a, a basically a, a revolutionary moment that will force America to overthrow the rule of money over their democracies and this kind of thing. And so the idea was immediately taken up by people. They, they were inspired. They believed that storyline that we told them. I think we believed it. They believed it. And the reason why I say that Occupy Wall Street was a constructive failure, which is different than a total failure. It, didn't, it doesn't mean that it didn't achieve anything or that nothing positive happened or anything like that. Of course, Occupy did a lot of positive and wonderful things such as changing the discourse in America, training a new generation of activists, you know, building movements like Black Lives Matter and all this kind of stuff. But it didn't achieve its its revolutionary goals. It failed to achieve its goals. And so it's really – that's why I call it a constructive failure. And in failing to achieve its goal, it taught us something important about contemporary activism, which is that our assumptions about what creates social change um, and what kind of activist protest tactics create social change are wrong. And this is, the, I think, the most important thing for activists to understand is that we can't just – it's not as if we should just do another Occupy but bigger, you know? No, we need to do a fundamentally different approach to how to go about changing the world. So if Occupy wasn't a successful protest, then what does a successful protest look like today? Yeah, that is such an important question because one of the things that's happened to contemporary activism is that we've lowered our, our horizon of possibility, which means that we've started to kind of give up on the more difficult tasks and instead we've settled with things like, well... I got that 
person in power to kind of talk about my movement, and people generally are speaking about this issue. So even though we haven't ended income inequality, and even though the corporations still dominate our democracies, especially in America, well, at least they're talking about it. I mean, that's that I think is really a kind of self. Defeating logic, you know, we can achieve so much more. So, what would success actually look like? Success would actually look like some sort of fundamental transformation in the way that we live, a regime change, either in like a spiritual level of like how reorienting how we live, or like literally in the sense of we put the people into power versus these,、um, you know, rich corporate oligarch type people who now run our governments, and so. I think that a lot of the a lot of the things that activists have to ask themselves this is a really important question, which is, do I believe that revolution is possible and desirable? Because I think a lot of activists in their heart actually don't believe in the desirability or possibility of revolution, which means that they're not doing activism. They're doing something else, which is fine, but they should just be honest about that. They're doing something called social marketing. They're marketing ideas. They're getting new ideas out there. That's fine. But activism is about transforming the world, and I think that activism requires kind of. Believing again in the desirability of revolution and seeing that revolution is a necessary part of, you know, what it is to be human and moving history forward and all these kind of grand narratives. You wrote about the parable of the three pigeons, and it was a way of explaining that activists are being fooled into thinking that they are actually creating change. And you attribute that largely to government tactics that make protest more symbolic than anything. What are Some of those tactics that you encountered during the Occupy movement, and did they give you an insight into any possible solutions to them or workarounds for the future?、Mm. Okay, that's a huge question. But first, I want to explain the three pigeon parable because、right. you're the only person who's asked me about that. I think it's like I thought it was fascinating. It is. It's really interesting way of thinking about like what we're talking about. So, so the way it works is like this is actually based on a real experiment that happened. Okay, and so you have three different pigeons, and you put them each in a different box, and inside the box there's a lever. And in the first box with the first pigeon, every time it hits the lever, it gets some food. Okay, so so every time it hits the lever, it gets some food. In the second box, every time, every second time it hits the lever, it gets some food. So it has to hit the lever two times in order to get food. In the third box, though, the pigeon has to hit it, the the food is released on random pecks. So the pigeon could hit it three times, five times, seven times. It, it there's no correlation between pecks and food. Okay. So now what happens is that this, once the pigeons have kind of learned the system and they've lived in the box for a few days and they're clearly getting food whenever they're hungry, the experimenter disconnects the lever from the food. Now what happens to each of the pigeons? This is really fascinating. The first pigeon, he'll, he'll, he or she will just peck the the the、um, the lever, you know, once and see that it's not doesn't release food and kind of like learn immediately and stop pecking it, you know. The second, the second pigeon, it'll take a little bit longer, and maybe he'll, he'll peck it like four or five times. But then he'll see, oh wow, no food is being released from this from this behavior. I'm going to stop pecking. But the third pigeon, the one where the pecks didn't actually correlate with food being released, he never stops, or he, she never stops pecking. She just pecks forever. And so th- what this is is this is a parallel. This is a, 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 a like kind of a story about activism. The lever represents protest, and the food is social change. So when we have a false theory of social change, like the third pigeon, the pigeon who's 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 just protesting and getting food randomly, then we never really stop doing the behavior, right? But when we have an accurate theory of social change, when we understand that there's a connection between our actions and actually social getting social change, then we're able to understand when we need to stop pecking the lever and when and when and when we should keep pecking the lever. So the most activists are stuck in the third paradigm. We just what 
what we do is we just rush into the streets and protest all the time. So when any sort of social change happens at all, then we're like, yeah, it's because we protested. But it's, but it's completely random. And the government is and the government has has done a great job at disconnecting the connection between lever and food. They dole out social change when they want to. You know, they don't do it when we protest. And so retroactively, people will be like, well, what about the Keystone XL pipeline? And it's like, yeah, Obama decided to like do that on his good old time. He didn't like listen to those lame, totally lame, scripted, non-civil disobedience, civil disobedience protests. You know, like those are just performances that later on he can they can make this. Yeah, that we did that. It's like, no, you were just pecking the lever and nothing happened. And then later you kind of like so that's that's kind of like the crucial thing there. So what is it that's actually stopping these protest movements from achieving their goals? Is it is it that government organizations are better at being a branding machine or is there actually legislative change that they're influencing to limit the effect that a, that a protest movement can have? I think what happens is that, you know, Protest has become something that's used to justify the pre-existing kind of like um, agenda of government. So like it's hard to see in our own countries. But if you look at like, for example, like Egypt, like when the people went into the streets and protests against Mubarak, it already kind of conformed with um, pre-existing geo- Western geopolitical agenda to get rid of Mubarak because he was getting so old. And that's why if you look at it, like those protesters, some of them were trained in America and all this kind of stuff because America America exports democracy abroad in order to kind of influence foreign governments. So, so they were able to say, the international community was able to say, look, you have all these people in the streets protesting. You need to step down. We're, we'll help you. Um, you know, they kind of like help help these people step down. But when the when we use basically the exact same tactics in America, of course, they ignore them and smash them with the police. And then no, and there's no higher international agenda to say, hey, you have to listen to your people. It's not like the UN stepped in and was like, you guys need to listen to Occupy Wall Street. No. So I think that it's that that's the, that's one of the problems is that protesters also oftentimes unconsciously just become uh, pawns in a larger geopolitical game. And they don't realize that they're just being, you know, used to justify something that Western governments already wanted. They already wanted to get rid of Mubarak. And that's why they also overthrew Morrissey. They wanted to replace Mubarak with another version of Mubarak, which they've gotten in General Sisi, which is why no one's, you know, no Western government has complained about the fact that they have someone even worse than Mubarak because he's he's in the same kind of paradigm, which is what they want, a military dictatorship there. So it's really, yeah. Okay, one question about Donald Trump. Do you see him as a protest candidate? Yeah, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders are both symptomatic of Occupy Wall Street. And I think that, in fact, I think that Donald Trump has done precisely what Bernie Sanders should have done. Bernie Sanders should have said, I'm going to drop out of the Democratic primary race because it's a scam. And I call on all the occupiers to join me in the streets on September 17th, the anniversary of your movement, as we build a movement that's going to seize control of this government. And we're going to have a revolution in this country. That's what he should have said. But of course, he didn't say that because he's actually a wishy liberal progressive who would never call for something as risky as that, you know. But who is calling for it? Mr. Donald Trump. And now Bernie Sanders can't possibly call for protests in the streets. But wouldn't that terrify America even more than Donald Trump is terrifying America? I think people would secretly be cheering. I think, yes, they'd be like, damn right. There's the candidate who's been talking about political revolution actually going to do it. I think Bernie Sanders probably would have had a better chance of getting the Occupier generation into the streets than Trump has at getting the... Tea Party or the older conservative generations of the streets. But but again, we don't know. We don't know. Magic can happen and who knows. 
That was part one of a two-part interview with Michael White, the author of a new book titled The End of Protest, A New Playbook for Revolution. You can catch part two next week and use the hashtag VibeTalks to join the conversation on Twitter. I'm Zachary Camp for Vibe 105.